the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. On the show today, we have Nicholas Broughton, known in the Vortex as Nikki B. Nikki got pulled into the Vortex against his will, and like most people, couldn't get out. He's done a ton of research on a brand new suspect that you probably haven't heard of before, James Klansnick. I had a great time hearing from my friend Nikki, and I'm sure you will too. You know, I feel I got the best. I feel I got pretty much DBQ. I mean, I feel like I got the if I feel I got the best. I got the best suspect for sure. Out of out of any, I mean, not any dis, not any disrespect to any of the other suspects, and everyone's gonna say their suspect is the best. But I do feel when you look at everything that I got, when you look at when you look at the my whole my whole body of evidence, I feel like it's more likely than not than if it wasn't. I feel like more likely than not wasn't my suspect. Um, it was like someone r- right close to him. Let me ask you this. When did you first hear about D.B. Cooper? I've always been into unsolved unsolved mysteries and stuff. One of my favorite shows uh, going back in the day uh, was uh, Unsolved Mysteries with Robert Stack. I don't know if you've ever uh, watched that show at all or remember that show. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that, that was a great one. Um, so... I always used to watch that show, so that kind of from a young age got, kind of got me into like unsolved mysteries and stuff like that. Um, so that I always had kind of an interest just from kind of watching that show, which is one of my favorites. Um, and then I first heard about DB Cooper probably around 2011 uh, when that whole thing came out with Marla, and then um, and David Carr kind of got on and all that stuff. Um, I kind of started following a little bit then um, because it was just like in the media and stuff. Because before that, I mean, I wasn't, you know, I'm only, I'm only 30, Darren. So I wasn't real. I, I was not even alive when that actually happened. Yeah, Um, me neither. So, yeah. So that was the kind of first time it kind of came on my radar. Um, And I do know, and I do actually remember watching, like as a kid, watching the D.B. Cooper uh, episode from Unsolved Mysteries. Um, but like I watched that and I was like interested by it and then, but it, nothing kind of spurred until that 2011 when I heard kind of got me kind of spurred it back up again. Um, but then it was pretty much really quickly, uh, you know, kind of brought, kind of brought down that it, that there was really, that there was really nothing to it. Although it was very interesting. The FBI paid a lot of attention to that claim, uh, to Marla's, Marla's claim. Um, you know, there was a lot of people that have come out the woodwork before and after um, that never really got the FBI attention. But for some reason, I guess um, Marla had some connection with um, 
with a gentleman that was working at the FBI at the time. Um, and that was the last case agent on D.B. Cooper, Curtis Ang. There we go. So she had a relationship actually with, actually with Curtis. I mean, I don't know what, what Curtis's fascination with they had something romantic going on or, or, or not or what. It was kind of, it was just kind of, it was just kind of interesting to me that the FBI really took um, a serious interest in it. Now, there is actually a, a, a good reason why they probably would have, which is, which is because L.D. Cooper's brother actually worked at Boeing, um, or uh, actually worked at Boeing, and he and he was he was in a, he was a surveyor. So when you looked at it from those few couple things, you're like, oh man, this this actually could seem like you know something pretty 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 good here. Maybe that's maybe that's why they kind of kind of jumped on it, but. I don't really know. It was it was it was interesting what happened with the whole uh, Marla thing, but that end that ended up, I mean, pretty much uh, be, uh, being disproven. Uh, but that's kind of what like uh, uh, re-sparked it from the old uh, unsolved mystery. And then it, I kind of forgot about it again um, up until because you grew up in Southern California, right? Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, I've been living up in here, up in Southern California. Uh, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, a uh, suburb of L.A. pretty much all my life. And then I moved up to uh, Lake Elsinore, uh, which is uh, kind of right in between uh, San Diego and L.A., uh, kind of more more towards the San Diego, uh, San Diego area, uh, Inland Empire and uh when i moved uh when i moved up when i moved up there uh that's where uh i m- i uh actually ran into a guy by the name of uh airborne bob uh robert ragstraw okay and you guys probably already know about uh about about airborne bob ragstraw from colbert's uh Thing that happened in 2016 so that's actually what kind of got me uh going uh back up on the uh, really kind of sucked me into the vortex back in 2016 when that history channel documentary uh came out on ragstraw and i actually knew actually knew ragstraw met him the year before so when that history channel docu came out i was like Oh wow! I I, I think this guy's DB Cooper. I, I I know I've I met this guy. I'm like this is crazy, you know. So that really. Oh, so you didn't know that that History Channel documentary was about him? I didn't. Uh, I didn't know it was going to be about him. I just. Uh, I just heard it was going to be a, a new history, a new History Channel documentary. They solved the DB Cooper case. You know, that's that's pretty much what it sounded like. You know. Case closed. That's the way they uh, kind of um, kind of pitched it in the um, <coughs> kind of pitched it in the um, in the trailers. You know, because I'm a, I'm a History Channel. I watch History Channel a lot, and I don't, I'm you know pr- you know probably what something else I was watching there the other day, and, and that and that uh, and that promo probably came on, and um, and then it, it you know piqued my interest for sure. And did you talk to Bob about it? I didn't. I didn't know it was going to be about Bob. That's that's the thing. I had no. I had no idea. So when I saw. So when I saw. When I saw the special, I was like, "Holy schmoly!" 
I'm like, I know this guy. And then I was, and then when I start, and then I started, you know, I, after all, all the evidence that Colbert, uh, Colbert uh, brought forth, it was, it was some good, it was some definitely some good stuff, man. You know, I was, I was definitely sucked in. That's what got, that's what got me in the vortex. I mean, I, I was, I was pretty much gung ho on Ragstraw. I pretty much thought he's probably the guy. I thought Tom Colbert, he did, he did the work. He's got a cold case team. He's got. He's got all these pieces of evidence. I'm like, man, this looks solid. But you know what? I'm, I uh, my my curiosity peaked, and I'm like, I want to see. For, I want to see for myself because basically, the way I uh, got to know uh, Mr. Rackstraw um, is through a mutual acquaintance. Uh, I don't want to mention. I don't want to mention his name. Uh, but let's. Uh, I mean, we're cool. We're cool talking about it. Uh, he was. Um, uh, he, he was uh, my uh, weed. He was my weed supplier. Okay. Uh, pretty much. And uh, we became. We became. We became friends. I'd help him out. He, he was growing weed and doing some different stuff, and I'd help him out with trimming and different, different, and different endeavors that uh, he was working in. And sometimes I would be stuck going on him on deliveries when he had to uh, make some deliveries. And a few times it was to this guy. He called him crazy. Called him crazy Bob. He's like, yeah, we're gonna, we got to go deliver to crazy Bob. But every time you come in, fitting he was, nickname. He was so. Yep, cra- that's what he called him. He called him crazy Bob. I mean, I had no idea who this guy was. He was a crazy Bob. We just we just go down there to the marina down in San Diego. We're in Lake Elsinore. Uh, not too far down there from San Diego, uh, from San Diego, so we would we would go down there to this marina, and whenever he placed place an order for some stuff, and I would I wouldn't roll down every time, but um, uh, but once in a while, if I was already working with him on a job or something, and, he, and Crazy Bob called him, we need to go down there, and then sometimes I had a, a, I was just stuck going with him, um, but yeah, I mean. He, he was really, you know, he was a really nice, you know, he was a really nice, jovial guy. The guy, he was always telling the stories from, he was always telling the stories from his days in uh, Vietnam and, and, and all of that. And I thought he, I thought he was, I thought he was a cool guy for sure. You know, he was a crazy, crazy character. But then I see that History Channel docu and, and there he is. I'm like, the hell? It's D.B. Cooper. They think this guy's D.B. Cooper, right? Crazy stuff, right? Crazy, crazy, crazy as the universe works like that, right? Like literally, like uh, I probably met this guy about six months before the uh, Cooper special uh, ended up coming out, and then we were actually approached by uh, a member of Tom Colbert's cold case team. Uh, so after so after I after the after the History Channel special came out, um, I I was I was really intrigued. I'm like, oh wow! I'm like, I, I really thought like after you know I thought Col- you know all his evidence. I'm like, Colbert's really got something here, you know. And I know like I know I'm like I know this guy. I'm like, I thought, wouldn't that be cool? Like I actually met DB Cooper, like you know. So I was like, I wanted to really you know. Colbert had a lot of great pieces of evidence, but I felt like he still didn't have enough to really prove that Rackstraw was D.B. Cooper. Right. So that's where I kind of took a liberty on myself uh, to do a little citizen sleuthing of my own with kind of already my uh, 
a little bit of in with Rackstraw to see what else I can find out to if, see if I can really, you know, kind of kind of clamp this down because it still wasn't enough for the FBI all of Colbert's I mean all of Colbert's evidence and it it still wasn't enough for me either, you know, and then that's why I kind of uh kind of took it upon myself to to really see to to really fi find out if Rackstraw was really DB Cooper. Because if the FBI thought he was Cooper, then he'd be arrested. Yeah, and he was actually looked at in uh, in nineteen. Uh, he was actually looked at back in back in the se back in the seventies. Um, you know, they flew him back from Iran. I mean, you know the whole. Um, if you uh, watch the documentary, if you know, if you know Col uh, Colbert's uh, story on him, um, you already know. Uh, pretty much. Uh, what happened with Rackstraw there? Right. Yeah, I'm hoping to have uh, Colbert or maybe even Rackstraw also on the show. Th that that would be awesome. Uh, Colbert, pretty much, if you listen to all of his interviews, he just regurgitates the same stuff over and over. Um, he's got he's got nothing he's got nothing new. I mean, Colbert's uh, Colbert's pretty much everyone that's in this corner. They're they've been paid for to be in, they've been paid to be in this corner. Like I said, uh, we were kind of, I I was I was um, kind of of uh, strong armed by Colbert and his team to to work with them. Okay. Uh, like I said, they came, they were doing their own stakeout on uh, Rackstraw at the marina, and we were there one night making delivery to Rackstraw. And they rolled up on us, and they were basically like, "Look!" And this is where I, they already knew who I was because at this point I've, I was already on the forums, already kind of chatting it up, already kind of making, uh, kind of making myself known as a sleuth in the Cooperville. Jumped right into the vortex. Exactly. I just, I just jumped, I just jumped right in. Um, to, you know, like the vortex just sucks you in, man. But so they, I think their guys already saw some of my posts, uh, my posts on the forums and stuff. Um, so they exactly knew who I was uh, when they when they rolled up on us one day when we were outside of Rackstraw's uh, marina, and they tried to strong they tried to strong arm me in particular uh, to to work with them, and you know I didn't want any trouble at that point, so I said. Okay, I mean, I was already, I was already sleuth, I was already sleuth the case. I was already interested. I said, okay, I said, okay, Tom. What did they ask you to do? Um, basically, they wanted to me just to keep relations with Rackstraw. Um, see, if, see if I can get on the boat. See if I can. See, see if I can just get, just dig more. You know, just get more, just get more information on them. You know. And Rackstraw, Rackstraw was tough. I mean, and that if you if you know Rackstraw's background, he's he's a very scary guy. So you know, I was approaching this with kit gloves, so to speak. So I, you know, I I was like, okay, I told Colbert and his team, I'm like, okay, I'll do what I I'll do what I can, and um, I'll I'll brief I'll brief you on it on any new information I get. So that's kind of how I that's uh, how kind of how I started out. Did you have any information to provide them, really? 
and I did. I actually, well, not from not from Rackstraw directly because he's the. I mean, he's the guy's the guy is as, as slick as they come. I mean, he's as slick as uh, slick as the duck's back. I mean, is like if you've heard Rackstraw, uh, you've heard Colbert's report on him, all his stories. It's it's true, man. The guy is a con. The guy is a con man. Con man. He is absolute. He's absolutely slick. Um, but his story's pretty incredible. Yeah, it, it's 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 incredible. Um, but I was able to learn stuff through Rack, uh, about Rackstraw, but not from him. I had to go through other sources. So I had to uh, I had to find his ex. He had a lot of ex wives, right? So that was already a good uh, that was already a good little source right there. So I went through his ex wives on Facebook, and through one of them, this is where Col- I actually got this for Colbert. And you, uh, you can, you've heard Colbert mention this on a couple of his podcasts that he doesn't give me credit for, but I'm the one that unearthed this for him. Um, uh, was one of his ex-wives saying that Ragstraw, um, at one point he w- he was have he had a stroke. He he was pretty much about to die, and he admitted on his deathbed to her that uh, that he w- that he was involved. Now now see, I only said that he was in that he admitted that he was involved. Um, so you know, uh, Colbert is going to take that as he was DB Cooper. But I don't know that I got uh, I got one of his wit I got one of uh, his exes to to say to to admit that to me that when he had a stroke and uh, thought he was going to die, uh, he he told her that he he was involved in the DB, in the DB Cooper case. Yeah, a couple different people have said they think you know it's possible that multiple um, prominent suspects are involved in the crime. And not just one person. And you know what? That is that is not a theory that I'm not going to discount because you have a lot of these you have a lot of these suspects that were in that have been um, found in weird in very weird circumstances and locations at that time. Um, so, for one example, Richard Floyd McCoy, who a lot of people believe. You know, uh, was DB was DB Cooper? Um, he was in Las Vegas. If if you believe uh, if you believe Russell, the FBI agents Russell Kamali uh, uh, Kalam and uh, his partner Bernie Rhodes, um, he was in Vegas. They they say they have they have phone records and everything that he was in Vegas uh, the night of the, the Cooper skyjacking. So you wonder uh, if you know Richard Ford McCloyd's background. He, um, he uh, he's um, <coughs> a Mormon. Mm-hmm. Doesn't drink. Doesn't gamble. So, you gotta wonder what was he doing in Las Vegas the night of Super, uh, the night of the, the Eva Thanksgiving. Um, very, very, very strange. Okay, that's odd. Then you got. Yeah, that is that is that is very odd. I mean, and it's I mean, I I still haven't seen the actual the receipts or anything with my own eyes, but uh, but if you take it for face if you take it for face value, I mean, there there's some weight in there's definitely some weight in it that um that, that McCoy was in Vegas that night. Um, and then you have you have some other you have an, another weird uh, weird one even uh, with um the latest guy um. Walter Recca. Yes, with Walt. So with Walt, I mean, none of the none of the stuff really adds up. Um, but the fact that he was in Cleallum in the in the wood—that's the only thing like that seemed to 
probably that that could be true that he was in Clee Elam in the in the woods soaking wet like Bruce said you know like that's the only thing Bruce took that thought he that probably was real you know and I trust his Bruce instincts so if he thought that was true then I I'll I'll go with that 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 a Walter Reca was in Clee Elam Washington and he got picked up out of the woods with a, a soaking wet with a suit or whatever you know that I don't think I don't think he was DB Cooper but I think that very well could have happened you know. And that's also like some that the, exactly yeah, and you have wonder to wonder why. why exactly. Okay, and then we have uh, another sim- another similar another similar situation with um, names names escaping me right now at the moment. There's there's so many there's so many there's so many suspects in this thing, Darren. It's so hard. To, uh, it, it's crazy, man. It's crazy, but. There are so many suspects. Bottom line is this: I've looked them all. I've looked everyone up and down, and every suspect. There's something that that kind of goes against it, right? There's there's something there's something there's some boxes that you can't check off. There's something that there's something that goes against it. There, some there's always something with that some certain with every suspect that goes against the grain. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, everyone is looking over certain flaws and and their suspect and pointing to circumstantial evidence. It could be yes. this person or that person. And there's a lot of there's a lot of discrepancies in uh, in, in in every in every suspect. Uh, but I believe when we start looking at the person of interest of mine that I believe is DB Cooper, and I've been spending countless hours looking for a one box that I can't check off or something to go against something that just goes that that goes against it and I haven't been able to find I haven't been able to find anything Darren and who's your suspect Nikki uh, that'd be James Edward Klansnick and when did you first hear that name I first heard about James Edward Klansnick right after um we kind of finished up our investigation in Iraq straw. So kind of go back a little bit more. Uh, Colbert's team had me doing, had me doing some work for him. I, I, I agree. I agreed disgruntledly to, to, to help him out and to, to kind of help him out, see what more information I can get. Uh, I just couldn't, I just couldn't deal with Colbert and his team. Uh, the way, the way they were, uh, the way, the way, the way that they dealt with me. So, so pretty much I was still just trying to, I just wanted to figure out what, cause I was, I had a, when it first came out, I, th- I really thought they had something with, with, with rack straw there. You know, I, I really did, you know, all that evidence, it looked, it looked really good, you know, but I'm like, I have to sleuth this out for myself and then I can't really keep killing Tom, Tom and these guys, let me get involved. I gotta, I gotta sleuth this out for myself. So. That was when I I kind I uh, I linked up with another us uh, another sleuth kind of like another younger sleuth that just came on after the uh, the History Channel documentary it kind of spurred up a lot of new uh, a lot of new blood into kind of the uh, the Cooper vortex so so to speak. You know, younger, younger blood because you've had your, we've had our mainstays for the longest time. You know, back since, back since, uh, back since 
you know, the internet age kind of got popular on the internet back since the very late 1990s and then through the 2000s on the Drop Zone forum and then later the DB forum. But you got your kind of mainstays that were the, there from the there from the beginning. Um, probably Bruce was kind of like the last one to join on the party, but Bruce. Bruce is, I mean, he's he's the, he's the godfather in in my eyes. You know the way he's kind of co- covered everything and all the all the information he's been able to dig up and, and uh, bring forward to the table. Oh yeah, I've heard a lot of people call him the mayor of Cooperville. The mayor, the godfather. I mean, I mean, Bruce. He, I mean, he he's he's the man, and he's not afraid to stick his nose in there. And you know, he's just he just he's. I mean, he's looking he's looking for the truth. But he's, you know, you also got to remember with Bruce too. You know, he still, he still's got the mount. He still got the mountain news. He still needs, he still needs DB Cooper to be, uh, to be a mystery. But Bruce, I mean, the work Bruce has done uh, for for uh, for Cooper and the community has been has has been existential. I mean, I've I've learned I've learned a lot, especially about uh, the par like the par- the parachutes and. He's 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 done he's done a lot of awesome he's done a lot of awesome work, for sure. Oh yeah. Yeah no. But basically, after the History Channel docu, some new some new it, it got me in the scene, and then it got another guy and uh, another guy in the scene, which I'm sure some of the uh, Cooperites probably know him. Um, his name is Derek Godsey. I've tried very hard to get him on the show. Uh, yeah, Derek. Derek is uh, he, he's he's a very uh, I don't, I don't even know quite how to say it. Derek is Derek is just Derek. Uh, he's a very much so a loose cannon. So basically, he. He came on the scene a little bit. He came on the scene a little bit after me, and he was on the forums. And you know, he had a lot of he had a lot of energy. He seemed like he was really gung ho to try to figure out this case. And he thought it was he thought it was Rax. You know, he thought it was Rax fraud too. He was he was really uh, buying into Tom Colbert's stuff. You know, and I, and I at the time I thought it was Rax fraud too. You know, I was uh, I was pretty much a, a believer for a certain point. And I kind of linked up. I kind of took. Well, I was working. I was working with Colbert, and Colbert wanted me. Started wanting me to do some, some extra stuff that I, I didn't. I wasn't really comfortable with doing. Okay. Got to remember, Robert Rackstraw. He's still a very dangerous. He's still a va- very dangerous guy. Very dangerous guy from. From what I've gathered, so what Colbert was trying to get me to do, I wasn't comfortable with. Okay, but Derek, he he was online and he was he was very he was very gung ho trying to make, trying to make things happen, and I started chatting up with him. And I said, Derek, let's I'm like Derek, let's work let's work together here. Power in numbers. Let's try to let's try to pin down Ragstraw. I think it's at the same. T- we had mutual interest. We both thought it was Ragstraw. So I said. So I. So I said, Derek. He'll never give me. He'll never give me credit for this. Takes it off for himself. But I said, Derek. 
one uh, this is the time when the that show catfish was getting pretty popular Remember, you know that show catfish mtv yeah i know i know that show yeah you know that show catfish mm-hmm so I was just watching an episode, and it just came to me, and I just hit up, and I just hit up Derek. So we just we had been in talks. I'm like Derek. I'm like, why don't you catfish Rackstraw? Get a nice little profile. Get a good little middle aged woman on there, and because De- I mean Derek definitely has some has has some has some skills. He's on he's on the internet. Like he's definitely a resourceful guy, you know. So I was trying to use him, you know, to my to my advantage. At the very least, so he's said, motivated. He's and he was motivated. The guy, you know, the guy's a Looney Tune, but he, goddamn, he was, he had motiv, he had motivation. He, he was trying to figure this thing out. You know, that's why, that's why I was like, okay, take a shot in the dark with you, Derek. So I gave him this idea to catfish Rackstraw. So he took it, like knowing that, like the typical Derek fashion, gave it to him, and he just ran with it. Next thing you know, he had the profile up. He was chat. He was chatting up. He was chatting up Rackstraw. Had Rackstraw sending uh, all kinds of uh, pictures that Tom Colbert never had. All these good shots, uh, selfies in the gym, everything. I was posting it up on the Cooper forums too, and everything. And they're they're they banned Derek pretty much really quickly, be just because they weren't uh, they weren't taking to they weren't taking too kind to his uh, to his approach. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, I remember it at the time. I thought it was yeah, great. It was, yeah, it was it was pretty it was pretty funny stuff, Darren. If you if you remember what was what was going on, my man. Uh, so, you know. So after kind of D- Derek did that, and you know, Derek was sending me all the screenshots back and sending me all the texts, and you know, and then me and, me and Derek, we kind of came to the same conclusion. We were like, man. It's uh, Rackstra had all the he had all the skills, right? He was a con man. He uh, he was he was he was pretty much. I mean, as far as qualification wise, uh, there probably is not a not a better candidate out there to be honest with you. But when you start looking, when you start looking a little deeper, okay. Rackstraw was still 29 years old at the time. The first report of the FBI was 50 years old. I mean, I know you can get some age wrong, but 29 to 50, that's kind of odd gap. Then it came down to 45, but whatever. You know, I mean, I can understand how like some younger people, like Bill Mitchell to someone a little bit older can think they're like a lot older, but I just think that's a, that's, that's kind, that's too, it's that's too large too an age a, that's gap. That's too wide a gap. And I think women are more observant with that than men are. And, and women are more exactly. Women are more are observant with that. And you know, the DB Cooper case is different than a lot of other cases where people want to say, well, eyewitness testimony is not always so uh, so correct or so good, you know. But I, I argue in the DB Cooper case. Because you had two women, well, mainly Tina Mucklow, that was within lit a cigarette, was within inch, was within inches of the guy, up close for over two hours. 
very, you know, he lit a cigarette. She, she was, he was up close to him. She had plenty of time to like observe, you know, it's not like a bank robbery or something where the guys move in and it's all chaos. You know, you have a situation of a two hours period of time that it was actually under, under calm situations because that's the way Cooper ran it where she had plenty of time to observe and see. Yeah. She sat next to him and had a conversation had a conversation. She was there with him for two hours. You know, I think there was enough, there was enough there to get, to get a good, to get a good sketch, you know? So that's where I, that's where I believe the, the, the DB Cooper sketch, the DB Cooper sketch is pretty, is, is pretty, is pretty, is pretty spot in my, in my person, in my personal opinion. I don't think it's, I don't think it's very far off. Yeah, I think it's got to be pretty close. That's that's what I think. You know, so, but basically after um, I had Derek do that kind of catfishing, this is kind of what the conclusion we came up with um, was that that wasn't Robert Rackstraw on that plane. Okay, that if Robert Rackstraw was on that plane, the reports of how he of his demeanor how he how he acted would have been different from the reports we got from looking in the fbi files okay db cooper spoke very low he was very calm he was very calm uh he spoke very more he spoke very sophisticated he spoke more sophisticatedly where ragstraw that just wasn't his it wasn't his he didn't use that kind of he didn't use that kind of vocabulary from Derek from Derek talking to him and you know exchanging he uh, from if reading the text the back and forth text the words he used it just it just didn't it just didn't ma- it just didn't match up and then the and then the fact that he had Tina Mucklow and he had Florence Schnafter um Florence, I believe, was a former um, Miss Something. Uh, I don't know if you know anything on that. I don't, but they're both really good-looking gals. Yeah, they were both they were both really good-looking knockouts, and one of them was a former beauty pageant for I forgot what uh, what city. Um, and after after Derek, you know, did that whole catfish thing, and. And and the way Ragstraw was just he's just such he's just such a dog, man. You know, that guy is he's a he's a flirt, he's a womanizer, you know. So we we fit, we pretty much the demeanor does not match up to the demeanor of, of the hijacker. If 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 Ragstraw was on that plane, he would have been he would have been flirting he would have been flirting with the weight, he would have been flirting with Tina, would have been flirting with Flo. He wouldn't have been so cool of a customer. It just doesn't match up the personality wise. So after kind of actually, yeah, I remember Derek saying on the forums then that uh, you know he made Rackstraw fall in love with him in five minutes. Yeah, quick. Yep. But he was set with Tina Mucklow for two hours mm-hmm. and didn't hit on her one time. Exactly. Ex- exactly. So after we kind of learned that, and we kind of just got just learned the kind of person Rackstraw was it just it just didn't match up it just didn't match up to the to to the person from what we know that was on that flight 305 northwest orient 
on November 19 on November 24th 1971 yeah and like you said the age difference was always the biggest thing for me with Rackstraw the, the age the blue eyes um and then just just his demeanor like he would have he would have flirted with he would have flirted with him he would have said he would have said something out of the way um, he's a younger guy. He wouldn't have been as he wouldn't have been as cool. Like he wouldn't have been as cool and chill. Um, I don't think I don't think he would have uh, offered the tip. Like offered a tip. Like after he got his drink, he offered to, he, he he paid with a twenty dollar bill. He said keep the change. You know, if Ra- you know, I just don't I just don't think that was Rackstraw's uh, Rackstraw's personality. Just didn't really jive. With who I, with what the evidence shows the person that was on that plane. But I believe when you look at my suspect, James Edward Klansnick, he fits it to a T. How did you guys go from Rackstraw to Klansnick? So you, there's all this evidence against Rackstraw, so then you have to start all over. We gotta start all over again. Exactly. We're back we're back. Me and Derek, we're back to drawing boards. We've kind of Derek's a loose cannon. We, uh, we've kind of had a little bit of rocky, rocky thing there when we were working with each other and dealing with Colbert, and it was that, that it was a it was a whole it was a whole nightmare. Uh, but basically, after me and Darren came to that same conclusion, and then we we're like, "All right, man, let's uh, let's let's just keep let's team up here." We know we know this wasn't the guy, but we've already put so much time and energy. We can't just give up now, you know. So that's where I I looked at Tom K's Citizen Sleuth tie analysis. Okay, he did the first one I believe back in two thousand and eleven, and then he did the latest one back in two thousand seventeen with McCrone's Labs. Okay, so um, we had the two, the latest 2017 already. Uh, pretty much, uh, it it already had come out after we. Uh, I think it was before the History Channel docu. I think it already had had come out. Or no, it was no. It was actually not before that. It was uh, w- with the History Channel. That's who that's who ponied it up. So that was a f- maybe like four or five months later. The History Channel uh, did a little uh, special on DB, and they ponied up the money for Tom to take it to Macron's lab and do and do a more um, to do a more a more much thorough more thorough analysis analysis on the tie. Yeah. yeah, a more thorough analysis because the first one Tom did back in I believe uh, 2011. Um, he just used his own electron microscope, which is pretty good. They got some stuff. But it what it wasn't the uh, the best of the best technology to really if you want to really get a full profile of the particles on the tie, right? So when that when uh, after that history, so we were kind of just in a little bit of a in a little bit of a waiting period. Uh, we were just pretty much just looking at Boeing employees because that's. I told I told Derek that's what we gotta go on, man. We gotta go on Boeing employee, Boeing engineers from the fifty from the fifties. That's kind of what I wanted to start our our search on because from what I gathered, 
DB and everyone pretty much that you talk to, they won't deny this. They won't deny this fact, and they'll they'll uh, they'll tell you DB like Bruce Bruce has said it. No one can pretty much deny this. DB Cooper knew more about the 727 than the pilots, than operations, than the flight crew, everybody. Yeah, he told them how to fly and what settings to put everything at. Right. So when you look at like first of all the fifteen the fifteen degree flap setting, um, that was that was exclusive to the Boeing twenty seven twenty seven. That was exclusive to it. So there's no other commercial aircraft that had a 15-degree flap setting. Second, the fuel tanks. DB Cooper knew exactly how long it took to fuel those tanks up. And the second that it didn't get fueled in time, it wasn't fueled up in time it should normally be, he, he, was, right, he was right away raising a, raising a fuss. Okay. But it, go, it goes beyond that. Um, if you listen... There's an interview out there uh, from the you can find it on YouTube. Uh, it's from the Washington State Historical Society. Um, I forgot the gentleman's name they interviewed. I don't know if you've heard this one, Darren. Uh, if you if you haven't, I, I recommend you listen to this interview with this guy. He was he he worked for Northwest Orient as a, he was like a freight mechanic or something like that. But he was he was there he was there on the, he was there on the night. And he did an interview with the uh, Northwest Orient. Um, he did an interview with the Washington State uh, Historical Society uh, back in back in I think it was two thousand two thousand something where they had a, a little um, they had a they had a little uh, display going on there in Washington. Uh, they had a uh, Norman Hayden bring uh, give him the shoot. They had that on display. The whole nine, and they interviewed a couple people. Uh, one of them was that guy. The other guy was Bill Mitchell. But anyway, he said that DB Cooper specifically told him how to fill up the tanks. So he knew exactly. He gave him a specific, a specific percentage to fuel in each tank, and he knew exactly the size of the tanks. And this was this is strategically. Um, to fly the way that they were going to fly, which was like low, like uh, Cooper called it, fly dirty or like the low and slow. He, he specifically fueled the tanks up this way for this, for the way they were going to fly, which just, which just shows extensive, more than just, you know, some not like more than knowledge that someone just could have learned from somebody or from reading something. Yeah, he definitely knew more about the plane than the pilots. Absolutely, and they had not just not just the pilots. I mean, they so James Klansnick worked in Boeing Commercial Airlines, so they actually called the met like the top guy at the time at Boeing Commercial to get that inf to get most of that information. So that information came from the same division Klansnick worked in. Which which I thought which I thought was pretty uh, thought was pretty cool. So how do you guys arrive at Klansnick? It wasn't a name that I had heard or seen in the vortex before, and then suddenly, boom! Here's this new suspect. It's exactly, it's 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 the guy. It's the guy you never. It's the guy you never heard of, man. You know what? It's it's the guy you never heard of. He 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 came he came out from he came out from out of the blue. Uh, 
he was just a, he was just a he was just a he was just a lucky find. I mean, me and Derek, I had Derek looking at at Boeing employees 1955, 1956. We were both going through them like crazy, and uh, we 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 stumbled upon that article. We stumbled upon that article, James Klansnick. It was about the Boeing 727 hydraulics and pneumatics article. And it goes into great detail on the Boeing 727. And you you read that article, you, you know, I mean, that article is so detailed. You know this guy, you know this guy knows more than pretty much anybody on the 727, the way the article was written. Okay, he's one... You can from that article you can put him as one of the most knowledgeable 727 engineers that worked on it. And was the article by him or was it the article them interviewing him? The article was by him. He was the author. It was authored in 1960 uh, 19, uh, 60, uh, 1964. It, it was the 19 it was the July 1964 issue of Hydraulics and Pneumatics magazine. Many people's and favorite was, magazine. Uh-huh and it was called uh, the Boeing 727 more uh, more and better. Hydraulics more Boeing 727 Hydraulics more and better. And the high, the Afstairs uh, ran off hydraulics. He definitely knew how the Afstairs worked. He knew they could be lowered in flight. Um, he had all of the he had all the knowledge of the seven twenty seven. He knew about he knew about the flaps. He knew exactly. He knew exactly how to fl- he knew exactly how to fly that plane. Uh, for 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 what he for what he was trying to accomplish. And that was no problem. I mean, he was at home. That's why. That's why he was so part. Of, majority reason why he was so comfortable. I mean, it was it was his it was his plane. He was he was stepping into his domain. When you saw that article, how quickly did you think maybe it's this guy? Right away. It was just weird because in that in that article, in that article, he was sitting under a seven twenty seven, with the black clip on tie that was found on the plane. With the olive complexion, with the hair parted the same way, the nose looked spot on. Uh, we've actually, we've actually sent all of our facial, uh, our, we put our face to face, our face to face comparisons from classic to the sketch. Every single we did every single combo we can find on every sketch and every with every classic picture, his older one to the aged one. We sent it to the, to the top, uh, to the top forensics, uh, top forensic guy that judges that out in Houston, and he was he was he's blown he was blown away. It looked like a match to him. He was blown away. He he said he said he's match. So then you have to look into him. That's one that you know that's one of the top guys. But you know, you know, face, facial you know facial stuff s- sketch. Uh, I wit eyewitness, you know, that's all that that's not that's not a hundred percent conclusive, you know. But I believe I have something that is one hundred percent conclusive. Well, let's hear it. Without a shadow of a doubt. And this is this is my this is my smoking this is my smoking gun. Uh this is what makes me believe that I've found the real db cooper 
and more likely than not, it's him. There's nobody else that can be him, that can be DB Cooper. Well, what'd you find, Nikki? I told you before we kind of we went by Tom K's tie analysis. That's how we originally found Clans Nick, right? Because it pointed Tom. Uh, it pointed to it pointed to Boeing. Uh, it pointed to Boeing. He pointed to Boeing engineers with it, with with the tie findings. So we started going Boeing engineers. We were looking at them up all day, and we came up on Clans Nick. We just found so much there that it just couldn't be. It just couldn't be a coincidence, Darren. First of all, he had one of the most extensive obituaries online uh, you would have ever seen. It was so. It was so informative. I mean, me, me, and me and Derek learned more about Klansnick in his obituary than we did than I than. Either of us did combine with him catfishing me, try me, me personally talking to him and trying and trying to do my own stuff. We've we learned more about Klansnick in that in that obituary in that obituary. It was more like a, a nice memorial. We learned more in that than we than we did about about Klansnick in, in all of our work in one just quick read. You mean about Rackstraw? Yeah, we learned we learned more about Klansnick in his in his um, his memorial page than we did about than we did uh, on Ragstraw looking at him for six months. <laughs> Just goes to show how slippery Ragstraw is. Just goes to show. But little would you know that obituary that obituary page had since been removed. Really? Yes, had since been removed. We discovered it. I don't know exactly when we discovered it. But we discovered it, and it was about up maybe for about six six months after maybe six months or so after we discovered it. Um, at this point, uh, me, me and Derek had kind of gone our own se- kind of gone our own separate ways. We were we were working on we were working on Ragstraw together for a little bit. We were both. I mean, I was working for Colbert. I got I got uh, Derek under me. And then we both had enough with Colbert, and then me and Derek were still trying to work for a little bit, um, and that's when we that's when we found Klansnick. And then once we found Klansnick, then Derek just uh, went on, uh, just went uh, pretty much uh, crusader mode. He he wouldn't listen to reason anymore. He just was like, "Oh, I found, I found DB Cooper," and then at that point, he was just trolling, spamming. A lot of people in the Pacific Northwest will know him as the DB Cooper troll. Yes, I, I don't know if he's. Uh, I haven't kept up in the last couple of weeks, but I know for a minute there, he was posting on every Facebook group in the Pacific Northwest. Anything related, he was posting up. James Klansnick was DB Cooper. James Klansnick was DB Cooper. Just posting, posting. Yeah, I have friends who have zero interest in DB Cooper and are aware of the DB Cooper troll. Yeah, the, yeah that's what he's known as, is DB, the DB Cooper troll. So I mean, so that's where he's kind of sabotaged, you know, the, the investigation, the investigation for me. I mean, I already, I've always knew he was a loose cannon. Um, he was successful in kind of helping us. It kind of helps figure out that Rackstraw wasn't the guy, um, but. 
after that, once he, uh, once we found uh, Klansnick, uh, he he pretty much stopped trying to do any kind of investigation. You know, he just he's like, okay, this has got to be this has got to be him. My because he, he uh, Derek's a very visual, very visual guy. So he goes up. He just goes if the stats matches up. He thinks it's it. He uh, he's also he he's been trying to solve a bunch of other cold cases. He unsucc- he uh, wrongfully accused two people of being the Golden State Killer uh, f- from from the wrong sketch. I don't, know, I, don't know, I don't know if you heard anything about that, but yeah, he wrongfully I, I did accused hear about two people that. of being the GSK of the wrong sketch. <laughs> And uh, now he's doing he's doing the same thing with the Delphi murders. I saw that today. I wanted to do some Klansnick research, and uh, I saw he had that going on on his uh, Twitter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he's he's wrongfully he's wrongfully accused two people of being the Golden State Killer. Traumatized one built this uh, Bill Doss guy. It wasn't the Golden State Killer, but he's traumatized traumatized that guy and his family. And Derek just went completely, you know, you, you can't control him. He's just, he's his, he's his own guy, you know, he's going to do what he, he's going to do what he's going to do. Um, but have you reached out to James Klansnick's family? So, so Derek already took the lib. That's, that's what I'm saying. When Derek saw Klansnick, he just went, that was it. Once he, once, once we found Klansnick, Derek just, there was no, he just went off on rogue, rogue mode. So he hit started hitting up every member of uh, of the Klansnick families, um, whoever he can find on Facebook. He was just hitting them up, and uh, they didn't they didn't really they didn't respond to him. Um, he got one response from from uh, Klansnick's son uh, or grandson Tyler Klansnick. For he responded back, and then once he said, "Oh, I think your I think your father was DB. I think your uh, your grandpa was DB Cooper." I mean, he never heard, he never heard back from him again, you know, but I have, I have actually taken upon myself, uh, to reach out to some of, um, the Klansnicks and I have also, uh, haven't had any success, uh, probably because Derek already kind of, uh, burnt that bridge for me. Uh, but I was able to connect with one member of the clans of the Klansnick family it's actually uh, James Klansnick's uh, a, um, grand nephew. Okay. And he was he was he was actually he was actually really cool. He's a little bit younger than me, but yeah, he, uh, he, he's a younger guy. But he was you know he's he seemed pretty mature. He was he was a cool he was a cool dude, nice guy. And I just I and I uh, I messaged him on Messenger. And, you know, I just pretty much, you know, I was, I pretty much couldn't really beat around the bush with him, you know. I, I was trying for a little bit, but then I just had to let him know, you know. I'm like, we, th- uh, you know, um, there's some people that think that your grand, great, great, uh, that your great uncle was D.B. was D.B. Cooper. And you know what he told me? You know what he told me, Darren? Let's hear it. He told me that I'm not surprised. I've heard something like this before. That's weird. And then he goes on to talk about um, a cocktail party that was going on at his house. And his parents and friends talking over some drinks. 
and they were talking about Jim or James, James Klansnick. And they were talking about it. He said, this is his words. He was like, they were talking about his work at Boeing. And then they were talking about airplanes and money. Okay. I, I try to pry in a little bit more to get more details. He was like, well, I wasn't really in on the conversation. But when I, when I messaged him and said that I thought his grand uncle might be D.B. Cooper, his immediate response was, you know what? I'm not. I'm not so surprised. I've heard these talks before, and that was this, that was the situation. He uh, he he shed some light on to me. Um, you know, there were, I tried to get some more information. He just said basically. You know, he said it was. Um, he called it bad jokes about airplanes and money. But if he was saying it was, I mean, obviously he took some of it to some of it to real, or else he wouldn't have. Um, made that comment to begin with that he wasn't surprised yeah it was obviously worth remembering so that was the first uh the first person connected to Klansnick that i actually made con- made contact with and it's he's he's a he's a he's on the other side of the he's on the other side of the family so he's and he's got a, he's a young he's a younger guy he's got his own stuff going on so he's kind of been a little bit helpful but i don't know how much the family's kind of uh kind of tell them not not to get involved you know but what i you know you know uh, darren what i find really interesting is this i mean i I did not i did not tell derek to do any of this the guy's just a loose cannon but when he when he started doing all the spamming when he started just um going at all all of the members of the kranzik family and you know bombarding them and making all these claims, why was it? Why has it just been a complete no response kind of cold shoulder, like just no, just nothing? Like they're they no, they don't put up, they're not uh, putting any no no police charges, no 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 lawsuit, no nothing. They're just letting Derek just spew off whatever the hell he wants, whatever the hell he wants to say. That is interesting. That you haven't heard like you guys need to stop this. It isn't him. Leave us alone. Just no response. Yeah, nothing. And uh, you know, just no, just no, just no response. You know, because I've been, I'm focused on. You know, I've been focused on actually trying to make a, uh, make a, you know, come up with physical evidence that actually links Klansnik to the crime which i believe i have where derek has just been just kind of ruffling feathers and just kind of just yeah i found him i found him i found him but he hasn't really been looking for any of the evidence do you guys or do you have a motive what what's james klansnick's motive to do this so klansnick's motive that's that's a that's a very good that's a very good question darren and you could have he could have several. He can have several uh, motives. One of them being, he worked on the brake system for the SST. Mm-hmm. Uh, he put a lot of work into that. Obviously, you know the SST got canceled um, shortly before uh, Norjack. So the timing on that's right. That could have been an influence. Um, 
at at this at the same time there was a lot there was there was a lot of stuff going on in the Seattle area with the aerospace industry a, a lot of people were were getting were getting laid off i mean there were signs there were signs at the time saying last one out uh, turn off the light you know it was pretty doomy and gloomy there for for a second that that could have been a, that could have been a motive for that could have been a motive for Klansnik. Um, th- there could have been many other motives. Um, one one of which that I've that I've looked into um, extensively, which I feel could have been a really great motive, was the Avril the Avril Arrow Project in Canada. Back in the fifties, uh, do you know anything about the Avro Arrow at all, Darren? No, I don't. So the Avro Arrow, that was um, a supersonic. It was the, pretty much a supersonic, uh, supersonic plane that was do, being developed by Canada uh, in the late fifties, I believe, and it was it was awesome. It was. It was it was ahead of its time. Great work had the best engineers working on it, and it was it was one of the first thing. It was one of the, uh one one of the probably one of the greatest things that was going to happen to supersonic travel, um, and it got it got nipped it got cut off by the a lot by our own by our own government. the The U.S. government pretty much sabotaged the Avro Aero project. For, for missiles and, and, and other stuff. There's a belief that in the aerospace industry, uh, well, a lot of those guys that, that got laid off the aero, they ended up working for Boeing, Northrop Grumman, and, and other spots in, in Puget Sound and in, in Seattle. And Clans have worked with a lot of those guys. Um, there, there's a belief that maybe Klansic was doing was doing it for them to get to get one to get one to get one back against the U.S. government. Um, there's also a belief that Klansnik could have been working with with the CIA. That was definitely a that's definitely another possibility. Um, if you, when you were mentioning um, uh, members of Klansnik's family, I was talking to. Um, I did talk to Kevin, which I mentioned, but I also talked. Um, and I have got ongoing relationship uh, with his best fr- with his best friend, Klanzik's best friend. His name is John Shorky. He's actually still alive. He's ninety two years old, and uh, I've I've reached out to John Shorky's son, uh, John Shorky Jr. He's been uh, he's been like I say, Bruce likes to say, a little bit adversarial. About Klansnik being Cooper. About Klansnik being Cooper, yes. He's he's been he's been very adversarial, very adversarial with me. I mean, I mean, I can understand for the most for somewhat he's trying to protect his ninety two year old fa- his ninety two year old father. Um, but his son uh, Drew Shorky, so so Klansnik's best friend's grandson. He's actually been very open very helpful very cool he told me about his experience that one time he met Klansnik when uh he visited his cabin out in wind bay with wood bay island you, you know where that is uh darren i do 
Whidbey. Whidbey Island. I know you're pretty familiar with the Pacific Northwest, right? Yeah, it's uh, Whidbey Island. Whidbey. Okay, cool. Yeah. So Whidbey Island. So yeah, Klanzik's family has has a cabin out there in Whidbey. I believe they still own the cabin. And he kind of told me about his experience when he was out there in Whidbey. He didn't really have much to say that he just said, you know, Klanzik was, you know, a nice guy. He knew how to cook. Uh, he knew he knew how to fish for the... Uh, he knew, he knew how to uh, catch the crabs and and cook up all the seafood and he was and he had and he was a really not knowledgeable guy. That's pretty much all they were able to tell for, tell me because they were really young at the time. What Drew told me, he told me that Jim was actually a Boeing test pilot. That's the first time I've ever heard that. I haven't heard that about him either. Me either, right? Yeah. So his grandson. Drew told me that he was a Boeing. He was also a Boeing. He divulged that he was also a Boeing test pilot, which I haven't heard about Clancy before. I, I mean, I knew he. I knew he was a uh, hydraulics and pneumatics engineer for thirty-seven years, but I didn't know he was an actual test pilot. Okay, but we knew we knew Klansnick was a pilot. Um, going back to Klansnick, just to kind of give you a little backstory. Maybe maybe we could have uh, started with this in the beginning, Darren. But just to give a little backstory uh, here on Klansnick, he was actually born in 1920 um, in Washington, a little farming town uh, by the name of Enumclaw. 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 Been through there before, there. I have. Uh, I grew yeah. up not too far from there. Oh, cool, man. Yeah, so he, he was born in Enumclaw in 19... 19- in 1920 and then he joined he joined the he joined the army in i believe uh 45 yeah and his military career is pretty interesting it's uh, yeah so he was a sh- so he was a shot he he um so yeah his military career he was army air corps b-17 pilot and then during world war ii over uh steyer austria in April 1944, his uh, B-17 was shot down by German forces. Uh, the, pla- the plane was in flames, and Klansnick and his crew were forced to jump out of the plane. Mr. Klansnick jumped from the bomb bay of the B-17 at 26,000 feet and parachuted safely to the ground. Um, James uh, knew a few members of his crew were able to evade the Nazis for a day, and... Uh, Half before finally getting captured by the Germans. Okay. But so I look at that back then. You have to say, hey, that's that'd have to be some pretty good training for a Cooper jump. When you think 26,000 feet, yeah, that's wild. And then he was a prisoner of war for over a year. Then he was a prisoner of war for over a year. Exactly. And he evaded capture for two days. People try to ask, like, how he didn't have any... Uh, a, a common question with Klansnick is, well, he didn't have any recreational skydiving experience. Well, I'll tell you this. He was in great shape. Um, he was skiing up until his 90s. If you look in his obituary, he was working out at the Bellevue, working at the Bellevue Club. Um, he, was, he was in great shape for... At the time, for fifty years old, I'm sure. I mean, just the description of uh, being uh, of Cooper's about five foot ten to six foot, slender, 
I mean, it was a guy in pretty pretty decent shape. He wasn't uh, any kind of a any kind of a slog, you know. Klanzik definitely uh, was in shape to uh, to be able to do this jump. And the fact that you want to point out there's he didn't have any recreational skydiving experience. I feel like his I feel like his uh, vent back in World War Two having to jump out the Bombay shaft, evade, uh, evade, evade, getting, getting, evade, getting, he's already getting shot down. They already knew where he landed. So you already kind of, it's not like in, on the DB Cooper where he's, where he was able to control it, control the situation and fly out of sight. This, this time they knew exactly where you were and he was still able to escape enemy capture. Um, and if you look at the conditions back when he jumped in, uh, in 44, uh, it was April back then in uh, in uh, in Austria in uh, Austria. So the weather conditions were probably pretty similar. If you look at the kind of equipment they had back in the day, that stuff was pretty goddamn heavy. <laughs> I'm sure it was. So that probably equal to the, like some like most of the money that he was carrying. So when you consider all that, that he was able to do that, if he if he, if he was able to do that, I think I think DB I think. Uh, I think Norjack was child's play for him. And have you seen uh, Marty Andrade's research about uh, World War II uh, jumps under terrible circumstances? I did, and, and 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 every every all every one of those guys made it pretty much right. Yeah, I mean, he makes a really good point for the fact that Cooper lived. Yeah, oh, and I mean, I absolutely believe he lived one hundred percent. He did not. Anyone that I, I do too. Yeah, there that whole that whole thing that he didn't is just the whole FBI narrative. I mean, Bruce Bruce has hammered this home quite a bit. Um, it, it was the whole narrative by the FBI. Um, at first they were keen on they were keen on getting them. Once they realized they were out of their depths. Then they were in safe face mode. Let's cover. Let's cover it up. Let's not make our butts look stupid. Right. You know they went from yeah we 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 know we we can totally find a Cooper. Once 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 they realized he got him, then they then the the narr- then the whole narrative was he didn't ma- he didn't make it. He was a wuffo, except he didn't know what he was doing, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what that's why they got Norman Hayden on board, and uh, they got a couple puppet couple public puppet guys to help kind kind of drill that narrative and just make everyone think DB Cooper died. Let's not worry about it. If everyone thinks DB Cooper died, this thing will die off. Heats off us, right? Well, fifty years later, we'll st- we're still talking about it. Fifty years later, we're still talking about it because there is. There isn't, I wouldn't say there isn't because I got it now, but there wasn't a resolution of this case. Well, now that we've got a little bit more info on Klansnick, let's uh, let's hear what your smoking gun is. The tie analysis by Tom K, it kind of started it all off. I mean, I kind of went by that as that, I mean, that's the only physical evidence we got here. Pretty much, yeah. Pretty much, besides besides the money that was found found on Tina Bar, that's pretty much the only physical evidence we got. Yeah, there's no argument there. Right. 
I don't I don't know what else I don't know what else there is. Okay. And then you have some people that want to argue, well, what if it wasn't what if it wasn't DB DB Cooper's tie? What what if he grabbed it as a disguise? Well, here's what I have to here's what I have to say to that. Okay. That tie brand new was two dollars at JCPenney. It's an affordable tie. Affordable tie, right? So if you were going to put a disguise together, why if 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 the way DB Cooper thought things out, he it doesn't it didn't fit the MO that he would walk into some kind of uh, a local because uh, the main theory is that he just kind of uh, the day before or whatever went and got a little outfit to put on right. It was either it was his normal clothes or. Or like the day before or two, he got a he picked up the outfit and at a goodwill or something and 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 made something up, right? That's kind of the that's kind of the thinkings, right? I agree. It's got to be one of those two, right? So so what do I say about the the good the the goodwill? It's like why do you go to goodwill and get a tie? You can get one brand new one for two dollars, and then when you walk into a goodwill, it's more it's more it's more conspicuous. Because a goodwill, if you're in a goodwill, there's not that many peop- customers coming through as much as like a department store like JCPenney. So you're more likely to get spot to get spotted or to kind of someone remembering you if you go in a goodwill or a thrift store and then ordering and then ask and then picking up the same clothes that DB Cooper just got recognized on. Than going into a J.C. Penney or some or a department store or something like that, right? Where they could have sold dozens of that same tie that same day. Exactly, and it it's like two. It's like two dollars. So it. I mean, it just it just doesn't make sense. And then also, like, why why would you think to put a why would you think to put a, a another tie on? Because this was the day and age in nineteen seventies. There was no forensics or anything like that. So. Why would you be paranoid not to wear like you can wear why would someone not what would someone think not to wear their own tie? Like, oh someone it was a black clip on tie, like there that's the generic it's a very generic tie. So why would someone think, oh yeah, someone's gonna recognize me by a black clip on tie? How many people wear black clip on ties? So why steal one? Right. You know? So that's that's where it's it's 90 percent 90 I, I mean i get up to 99 99.9 percent that was db cooper that was db cooper's tie he didn't he didn't borrow it he didn't grab it for uh he didn't grab it off a thrift store just to wear as an outfit that was his that was his tie and he, he left he left it behind he left it behind by mistake it was an it was an oversight or maybe not by I definitely agree with or, that. Or or maybe he maybe he just he knew like okay what what's a t- the tie wasn't going to link back to me because this wasn't the DNA DNA eight. Yeah, and he was careful to even get notes back. So I I think he left the tie there on accident. I, I would think he left it on accident for sure. You know, and then um, I I believe uh, Ulysses actually who was uh, on an earlier podcast with you guys he actually made a very good uh, I think I think it was him that actually made a very good point about it. He said it was like very, it was very dark. The, all the lights were off, so it was easy for him to put his tie down, and then it blends in with the seat, and he wouldn't have noticed it to pick it back up. Yeah, and he had a lot going on at the time. Uh, and and they had, and they he wanted the um, 
He wanted that money in a knapsack. So he didn't get the money in a knapsack. And that kind of bothered him. And then he had to figure out a way to secure the money a different way. That's why he wanted the knapsack to have the lid over the top. So it'd be easier. But because they gave it to him in the bank bag, the ends the ends of the bag were exposed. Or at least one end of the bag was was exposed. Uh, because they gave him in that, uh, it was exposed on the bottom. It wasn't going to be easily be just to strap up on Oppen without flying out. So that's why he wanted that uh, knapsack. He specifically asked for that knapsack. And that knapsack actually brings another hint to the case. Na the term knapsack is synonymous with... Have you ever used the, the word knapsack before, Darren? Just out of curiosity. I haven't used the word knapsack. You haven't? No, definitely not. Especially referring to a backpack. Definitely not. The backpack. Most people say backpack, right? Mm-hmm. Like like who 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 says who says knapsack? Even even in the set like even in the seventies, like I was asking people and maybe like most people still in the seventies said backpack. They didn't say knapsack. So gotta ask yourself. D.B. Cooper asked for a knapsack. He used that word for a reason. There has to been there had to been some kind of influential, some kind of influence in his life that that made him use that word. Because you, uh, you, your vocabulary kind of gets uh, you develop vocabulary from different uh, from different stuff you're involved in and, and stuff and stuff like that. So why did he say knapsack? So why did he say knapsack? So. I found out that James Klanzik is a member of the Mountaineers, long-time long member. Um, his, uh, his, his kids are still a member. His uh, kid, uh, Jimmy the Jet, is still a member of the Mountaineers. Um, so they're avid, they're avid, they're avid hikers, uh, mountaineer type. And Mountaineers, they use that word. That's a mountaineer term. Knapsack is a mountaineer term. So it's speculated. That D.B. Cooper was an outdoor an outdoorsman, mountaineer type. So that's another box that checks there, um, and it makes sense because he's he would he know he knew the area well. If he was he was he was a mountaineer in the Washington area, Klansik was a mountaineer in the Washington area. You would know that whole terrain, just just like Klansik did, and he'd be able to survive out in the wilderness for a little bit and do whatever he needed to do. That makes sense, but that's not your smoking gun. That is not my smoking gun. So my smoking gun. I don't know if you guys had the opportunity to. Uh, I know you. I know you did, Darren. You were you were there for uh, for Tom K's uh, tie analysis at the Cooper Conference earlier this year. Yep, you were there, and. Fortunately, I couldn't make it, but it was great that it was uploaded on YouTube and I was able to watch the whole thing. And it, it kind it helped me figure it kind of helped me figure out the missing links I had. It kind of put everything uh, kind of put everything together for me, which I was I was close I was close, but then after hearing after hearing Tom's uh, report at the conference, I was able to finally figure I was able to finally figure it out. And what I was able to figure out was uh, the majority of those particles from the McCrone's test that he did in 2017. Uh, the majority of the particles 
17 of the, I think they found, I, I don't know the exact list. It was like maybe 30 something tops, but 17 of those I've been able to attribute to one source, which is welding fumes or tick or tick welding fumes from, from forms of fusion welding, specifically TIG, TIG welding. And Klansnick would have been doing a bunch of TIG welding? Yes. Um, I sent you a document. Uh, it, was, it was an unclassified government document, which, which references Klansnick doing fusion welding in 1968. Yeah, you've practically become a metallurgist looking into this tie. I've practiced, yes, yep. I've practiced to become a metallurgist, um, TIG welder. I could probably TIG weld now if I want to. <laughs> but yeah, I've I've dug deep into the particles. I've been able to match 17 of the particles from the 2017 McCrum's lab report to one single source, which is fusion, which is uh, welding fumes. At first... At, I, at first, I thought it was coming from the electrode, uh, the electrode rods that were being welded because they had they had the uh, yttrium in there, they had the cerium, they had a lot of the particles that were found, right? So I thought the particles were coming from wel- welding the uh, welding the electrodes or like rods, and they have to be welded to a fine point when you do your weld. So I'm like, okay, yeah, he, he was probably standing around standing around the grinder while they were welding the rods, and that's how he picked up the particles on his tie. Makes perfect sense. Only problem, there's a lot of other particles on there. So it wasn't until a couple months ago where we got the, uh, where uh, they uploaded uh, Kay's report, and then Kay, on his report, he started, he started mentioning a bunch of, a, a bunch of toxic particles that were found on the tie. And you were there, Darren, I'm sure you remember him saying this. Yep. He was like, if you know where DB, if you know where DB Cooper got these, uh, got these toxic particles, please let me know. Yeah, because it's a pretty rare combination of metals and materials. It was a pretty rare combination, right? Because there were some tox, there were some definitely like toxic particles there, like lead, and um, I'll actually give you the, I'll actually give you the whole breakdown right, here, right here for my notes of all the particles that I've actually been able to match up. I thought it was pretty cool too, how you went to some TIG welding Facebook groups um, to ask their advice. I thought that was a really interesting way to gather information. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, like like I said, man, because I'm not an expert in this field. Like I've just kind of had to learn this stuff. Um, So I wanted to go to actual, like actual TIG welders, actually experts in the field to see if they kind of confirm my kind of confirm my findings you know yeah and you sent me that screenshot about guys talking about uh tig welding in the 70s and different methods and processes for it back then exactly and that's where that's where someone like like tom k he 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 doesn't have the knowledge in that area so when people uh so he can't really he, uh, he can't really he can't really speak on it like he was kind of making his he did a good job of kind of speculating with the particles. I thought the CRT was the most obvious kind of thing there with all the particles that uh, that came up. So I see how he came up with that. But there's a, there's a better explanation that includes more of the particles, which is 
which is welding fumes. And a lot of the toxic particles that he was talking about. So I'm actually just going to list off the 17 particles here that are all found. Well, um, so, so I won't, I won't use the, I won't mention the electro, just the toxic ones here, uh, that, that Tom K was, uh, uh, was alluding to. And then other ones that he thought were actually for CRT. So like cad, cadmium, vadmium, I believe those are, uh, those are some of the toxic, toxic ones. Uh, lead, which was also uh, lead, which was also found. But basically, when you look all seventeen particles, if you want to run down the list, we got tungsten, cerium, zinc, yttrium, antimony, cadmium, uh, vanadium, iron, cobalt, iron, chromium, copper, aluminum, nickel, tin, lead, and molybdenum. Okay, all of the, uh, all of those can be found in welding fumes. Okay. Now, I remember uh, when I thought it was actually the TIG welding rods that were uh, the source for this. And I asked, and I asked you to, uh, to, ask, to ask Kay, and thanks for asking that, because that actually helped me figure more stuff out. And when he asked him that, <laughs> he actually told you that there were, if it was from... Uh, from, uh, from the TIG welding and welding rods, he said there would be more thoriated uh, tungsten there. You remember that? Mm-hmm. He said there would be more thoriated tungsten. So with with actually speaking with uh, some some old school TIG welders, uh, they told me that that was the norm back in the day. Uh, they weren't using uh, thoriated tungsten that early on. You got to remember, a lot of the TIG welders that I spoke to they were they were amazed that anyone was doing fusion welding in 1968. I mean that's how that's how cutting edge it was. Yeah, they were using new exotic materials at the time. Exactly. So this was all this was a new cutting cutting edge process. So TIG was just kind of on kind of on the forefront at this point. And there wasn't there wasn't many people doing it, and the people that actually knew how to do it. Um, they, they were they were managers. They were overseeing this, like Clanslick, obviously. And um, he actually has experience because his father, um, in the 1920s, worked for the Black. Uh, he actually had some welding patents uh, back in the 1920s. He worked in the Black Diamond uh, district in Washington. Oh, Clanslick's father actually had a bunch of welding patents. Welding patents in the 1920s. He worked for the Black Diamond. Uh, uh, area in Washington in the in the mines, so I guess he did a lot of welding for for the for the mine work and stuff like that. Oh, that's pretty cool. So, yeah, so so welding welding is definitely you know in the in the family. Um, so basically, all of these part all of these particles right here. Um, you'll are you'll find in. <coughs> Fusion infusion infusion weld fumes. That's what I've been able to establish 100% concrete. So when you all those poisonous particles are in there, which are in welding fumes, and then you got all you got all the other stuff too, and then the fact that there is no thoriated uh, no thoriated tungsten in there, that actually points to the right time frame, and then 
Also, you said that uh, Kay mentioned that there'd be more, there'd be more tungsten in there if it was coming from TIG welding electrodes. Well, I looked this up, and uh, the, the the tungsten electrodes in the process doesn't actually like um, I believe the word they use is splatter. So it doesn't actually, um, you don't find too much of the tungsten in, in the fumes. Just because how heavy, heavy of element it is, and it doesn't uh, really splatter much. So they did find some tungsten, but just not a lot. But, if were, but before, when I told you that, there were, that when you asked them the question of grinding, of grinding the electrodes, yes, if you were to grind the electrodes, you definitely there should be more tungsten in there, but from the fumes there wouldn't be as much tungsten in there, and that the amount of tungsten found on the tie supports welding fumes, as well as the fact that there was no thoriated uh, tungsten found on the tie. Well, it's interesting because none of the other suspects have a real good account for why there is all that on the tie. Right. No. And that's that's how I can pretty much eliminate every other every other suspect, Darren, because n no other, no no other suspect um, has has the background. I, I, no other suspect you can you can explain how they got those particles on the tie. No other suspect you can explain it. Mo most of the suspects that you have were in were in World War II for the most part, right? Why are they Why are they wearing clip-on ties and they wouldn't be getting that stuff up on there? Rackstraw, um, McCoy, all these guys, because because the tie, I believe the tie um, didn't didn't begin production until I don't have it in my notes here, but I I believe it didn't begin production until about uh, late fifties and then kind of mid late sixties it stopped production. So there's only a little like ten year window there of the tie being produced. Which most of the Vietnam guys are in Vietnam, they wouldn't even have that tie. And why would they why would they be wearing why would they be wearing a tie in in war? Right. It it just it just doesn't make any sense. So but basically Darren the smoking gun is that gov is that government document uh, I, I believe I sent it to you. You've seen it before, right? Yes. Right. It's the SC, It's the SST follow-on program document. It's since, it's since been declassified. And I was able to dig it up just from Google, just from Google searching. And that right there is, uh, is, is my smoking gun. Uh, if you go down to the re if you go down to the references on that uh, classic is is referenced on a lot of different uh, work there for that SST follow on project, which is the supersonic transport project. Super yes, it's actually was a follow on because the supersonic transport program got canceled. Um, like I said, a little bit before Norjack. Don't know the exact date on me at the moment, but it got canceled a little bit before Norjack. Uh, but they continued with a follow-on. Yeah, off the top of my head, I want to say it was like 18 months or something. It sounds about right. Mm -hmm. But once it got scrapped, they didn't. All the work they did didn't really get. I mean, didn't get scrapped. They were still. 
they they still wanted to uh, use that technology they've already kind of been working on to use on other planes. And it, it came out in the next uh, the seven four the seven forty uh, seven forty seven the next model after the seven uh, it was seven fifty seven the next model after the seven twenty seven that kind of used the more futuristic stuff. But they were also working with the government on this follow on program to also help out transportation different and different stuff. So, on this follow-on program, there's reference to James Klansnick in 1968 doing in-place fusion welding. Okay, of of of, tit of titanium alloy. One of the one of the popular most of the, if you're doing uh, if you're doing fusion welding at the time, there's a couple different methods. Probably around from what I've learned from talking to welders and stuff from around that era, they were probably doing TIG welding, which is TIG inert gas welding, or I'm sorry, tungsten inert gas welding, which uses those, which uses those electrode rods that were found in there. And then the fumes, and gives off the fumes that were also found on the tie. Okay. We got the original discovery of the article, of Klansnick, of Klansnick's article, Back in sixty, uh, back in sixty five, the uh, sixty five sixty four, on the uh, pneuma uh, hydraulics pneumatics magazine, on the Boeing twenty seven seven twenty seven, you got him. He's wearing pretty much what looks like uh, an identical tie to the one they have uh, in FBI evidence. It is a pretty incredible photo. It is a pretty incredible photo, right? It when I looked at that. Yeah, and I believe if anyone just Googles James Klansnick, it's one of the first few photos to pop up. And it's it, it's it's incredible when you when you really look at it. Like I said, uh, we sent we sent matches to the top forensic guy in Houston, and uh, he he was he was blown away by by uh, by what we by what we sent him. But but it but at any but at any rate. We had that picture under the 727, the plane in question, wearing what looked like to be the very same tie in question minus the tie tag. That was in 64. Then we well, then we got a government document in 68 crediting him to in-place fusion welding. So we got we got we got him we first of all there's no other suspect that we even have a picture with a with a black clip on tie. Well, I think you have Kenny Christensen black clip on tie. Um oh an, an airline shot with Kenny. Yeah, in his airline uniform. Okay. So we have some we have someone else with the black clip on tie. Okay. But then when you can put the uh, fusion welding which produces the welding fumes which are found on the tie that's pretty significant proof in my eyes that, that tie belonged to James Edward Klanzig. Yeah, no one else really has a solution for the particles on the tie. And I and I, and I I've came up with the solution and the only reason I came up with the solution was because I found that I found that reference first. I found the reference of the fusion welding, Klanzig fusion welding. And then I'm like, okay. And then I started looking it I started looking into that. I was still going by Tom K I was still going by Tom K's uh 
tire report. When I found out the fusion welding, then I, then I started trying to see if I, what can I match up with fusion welding to with the particles on the tie. And the more I dug into it, the more particles I matched and I matched. And I'm like, hold on, there's too many things matching up here for it not to be related. And then at first I thought it was it came from the well, especially with such a rare combo of materials. Such a rare combo, man. And then at first I thought I got it. It was it was the it was the rods. It's just the grinding the rods and it sparks up, and that's probably how it got on this tie. But then when I was when I was watching uh, Tom K's re report from the conference, and he was talking about all of the uh, the poisonous particles, and I was like, well, wait a minute. And how do you explain these poisonous particles? And then I found out that those poisonous particles are found in welding fumes. And also the welding fumes contain the electrodes, particles of the electrodes in the fumes as well. So when I learned that, it's, it's pretty clear that this tie was, was, around, weld, was, around, welding, was around fusion welding, was monitoring fusion welding. It was a manager engineer overlooking fusion uh, TIG welding, fusion welding processes most likely take because that's that's what was prominent at that time and it matches up with the electrodes that were found on there without really talking to the family uh you don't really have any information on where he was thanksgiving weekend of 71 do you you know what i don't have i don't have any information because his family his family won't talk but i mean he has a big. He has a big family. All of his family resides in the Washington, the Washington area. All of his family is from the Pacific Northwest, uh, for for the most part. Um, so, uh, why would he? He's a family man. I've. You can look at. There's pictures still up on family Facebooks with Jim on, at family gatherings. So I don't unless I don't see why their family why he would uh, leave the area when his whole family's there, he'd be there for fa for you know for for family, for the Thanksgiving festivities. I don't see why he would he would leave, right? You know, and but if he would, I mean, he could definitely sneak away for a little bit because he's still you know he's washing name. He can sneak sneak a sneak away for a little bit and come back. You know, he could have easily gotten back in time for Thanksgiving dinner in the morning. You know, um, his fa his family his family owned uh, well Jim and his family owned a cabin in Woodbay, like I said before, which could have easily been flown into, and he could have he could have came back for Thanksgiving dinner the same night, or may maybe they, maybe they're having Thanksgiving at, at at the cabin. And he just he just flew in there, and no one, no one was the wiser. One thing I'm I've been really interested in this is that there was a comic book called Dan Cooper where it was like this pilot and stuntman uh, and there's pictures of him jumping out of airplanes Ooh. and then of course the Skyjacker chooses the name Dan Cooper do you think Klansnick has seen that comic book I absolutely I absolutely 100% do and I believe that's uh, what inspired what inspired him. I absolutely believe that it's not a coincidence. By uh, by any means, uh, when you consider that the events, similar events in the comic, 
actually happened before the hijacking? Yes. That is too, that is way too much of a coincidence. Way too much of a coincidence. Okay. So, I believe Klansnick was uh, was in was reading was probably reading the comic for sure. Um, there, uh, I've I've learned that uh, the actually the parents of Albert Weinberg, the uh, creator of the DB Cooper comic, were actually living um, in the same city as Klansnick's family um, for for a period of time at the same time. Oh no way! Yeah, which which was very very interesting. Um, so I don't know if there's a connection there between them. Um, but here, here's, here's what I, here's what I know. Um, for someone to use that name, Dan Cooper, considering the comic, like what, what the comic was and everything. Um, basically if you, if you haven't heard about the Dan Cooper comic, just kind of a little bit of a quick brief on it. Um, the guy was basically like a Canadian, uh, James Bond fighter pilot, dude. Um, he would he would get he would get shot down. He was uh, doing all kinds of uh, futuristic um, pi- piloting of of of, uh, of aircraft and all kinds of uh, all kinds of different stuff. But he was like he was pretty much uh, like like a James Bond of the skies type of dude. Yeah, there's an infinite number of male names you could have chosen, have and to choose one that happens to be a comic book that's similar. Yeah, to choose to choose. To choose Dan, to choose Dan, to choose Dan Cooper, was a very um, was a very interesting choice. And then when you look when you look at Klansnick's life, you see that he's a shot down fighter pilot in World War Two. Dan Cooper was a shot down fighter pilot as well. Um, Klansnick was working on future, uh, was piloting, wor- working on and piloting futuristic uh, space age travel. That's his T project. Uh, there was some projects going before that that was also on the supersonic space age uh, kind of thing, aerospace kind of thing uh, that, that he was working on. Um, so he pretty much lived the life. If you feel like the show ended abruptly, you're right. I had some technical issues that cut our conversation short. Nikki and I still have a lot to cover, so we're going to pick up where we left off in part two that will be out shortly. If you have any questions, comments, or top secret information on the case, you can reach us on Facebook at The Cooper Vortex or email us at dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. Thank you to Nikki B for working with me despite technical problems I caused. Thank you to Russell Colbert for being patient and putting up with me. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to The Cooper Vortex.